Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When I was when I was dedicated to the cause of Spirit Normal guys, it's your host Adam Sane, and uh, we got uh, Luke over here. <laughs> oh wait, Luke's not here. I don't see Luke. It's invisible. There's Luke nothing. There. There's like there's no here. Here, everybody, just just for everybody to feel here. like Luke is here. There's some there's some uh, there's some page turning there for you. We got uh, but we do have Mr. Rob Lins over hi. here producing. 
the the maestro, as I like to call him. The one-handed producer. <laughs> yeah, the one-handed producer. Uh, guys, we have, coming on tonight, we have Mr. Scott Bennett, who uh, is a uh, whistleblower. And he's written a book called Shell Gain, The Betrayal and Cover-Up by the U.S. Government of the Union Bank of Switzerland, Terrorist Threat, Finance Connection to Edward Snowden's Leaks about Booz Allen Hamilton and U.S. Central Command. So this should be a rather interesting show. We're going to kind of like dig deep into some uh, skullduggery and to some uh, intrigue tonight. Uh, it's very kind of cool to have someone that's an actual, you know, uh, a whistleblower that's uh, trying to to uh, to go into and uh, go resolve with. Uh, well, I'm losing it. I'm losing my mind. <laughs> Bringing stuff to light. Bringing stuff to light. Thank you. Thank you. A little tired today, so <laughs> apologize for that. You know, Luke's not here to keep me, like, you know, to keep the energy <laughs> level up and everything. But, uh, guys, we have, we're have we going to be talking about that to him in just a, in a few minutes. But uh, I wanted to read an article. We'd like to talk about some weird stuff on the show. And what we're going to talk about is The Walking Sam. Have you ever heard of this? Rob, I've heard the name. I'm trying to think of what it was. It's um, sort of one of those uh, creepy spirity types. Yeah, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a Slender Man kind of uh, kind of creature. But let's kind of like dig into this. And I heard this on actually on Micah Hank's show on the Grayland Report. And I'd I'd never heard of it. But he's like I said, he's kind of uh, similar to Slender Man. He's kind of similar to some other. Creatures like the Mad Gasser and stuff like that. We'll probably get into that like <laughs> later on. There's some real cool stuff. But uh, this is from uh, DailyDot.com. And this is, is an urban legend encouraging South Dakota Sioux teams to take their own lives. The Boogeyman, Tall Man, The Gentleman, The Babadook, Slender Man, and now Walking Sam. He has haunted us in various fictional forms for centuries, but now the spectral figure of traditional folklore and modern urban legends may be having a very real impact on teens' lives. An increasing number of suicides are occurring on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, and they're being attributed to Walking Sam. Since December, a staggering 103 suicide attempts have occurred on the reservation, reservation home to the Ogala Lakota sub-tribe of Sioux Native Americans. Out of these attempts, nine people between the ages of 12 and 24 have died, one witness account alleges that the number of attempted suicides was as high as 241 over a three-month period. Ogala Sioux Vice, Tribe Vice President Thomas Poorbear told the Associated Press that he recently discovered a slew of recent Facebook posts of an ominous display of nooses hanging from, hang from trees. In February, Poorbear said, a parent came to him with an alarming Facebook post. Nooses hanging in trees near Porcupine, a community of about 1,000 people. Tribal police later looked, took down four nooses, apparently left there as an invitation, but could not determine who was responsible. The New York Times elaborated on this incident, noting that local pastor John Tubulls was tipped off to a group suicide planned in a wooden area outside the town of Pine Ridge. Would you love to have the name like Poor Bear and Tubulls? That would be pretty cool. <laughs> After racing to the location, he and other adults found and removed the nooses and counseled teenagers who had assembled at the spot before anyone could make an attempt. The Associated Press also reported that teachers recently foiled a plan by several high school girls to take their lives simultaneously. 
Multiple reports on the rash of suicide attempts have cited folkloric elements as contributing factors in these incidents. One reservation minister, Chris Carey, described the presence of a tall man spirit to the Times who is appearing to these kids and telling them to kill themselves. Ogallis Sioux Tribe President John Yellowbird Steele, another cool name, stated that many Sioux believe in entities like a suicide spirit similar to the Slender Man. Another minister, Reverend Ron Hutchcraft, who is based out of Arkansas, described the phenomenon to the Mission Network News as the shadow people or the dark people. There are spirit beings, demonic beings, that are stalking the reservation and convincing young people that they are worth nothing and that then that have started this cloud of death over this reservation. Walking Sam isn't a new phenomenon. Last year, Redditor u slash Rimbim9 posted to the subreddit, R I Can Draw That, requesting an image of what they described as Walking Sam, a Slender Man counterpart who loomed over their stay at Pine Ridge. On my latest trip to the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, I kept hearing stories of this man who would roam the streets at night. Some locals claim to see him, but I cannot find anything anywhere on this man. Here are some of the details on this guy. Kind of scary. People believe he is sent on this earth as punishment and is just looking for company. U slash Rimbim 9 also listed many of Walking Sam's purported physical attributes. According to his description, the specter is seven feet tall, has a lean figure, has no mouth, and carries the bodies of Lakota men and women off his arms. Weird, I know. People believe he is sent on this earth as punishment and is just looking for company, he wrote. Of course, the descriptions of Walking Sam are rooted in centuries-old mythology and folklore. The Ring of Nooses in the Forest, for instance, harken back to the scenes from found footage films like The Blair Witch Project, while the anonymous encouragement to follow through on the attempts bears an eerie inverse resemblance to Japan's notorious suicide forest, Aoka, I'm going to mangle this, Aoka Gahara, which is littered with signs and messages begging those who go there not to complete the attempt. The shadow people are also part of a long-standing urban legend. The most obvious source for the tall man is the boogeyman, who is often described as a spectral lanky figure in black who steals bad children away. The boogeyman has found a popular recent revitalization in Slender Man, a creature so compelling that last year several teens committed, committed assault, reportedly due to the influence of the Slender Man mythos. In Slender Man, or Slendy, was created in 2008, his popularity immediately gave rise to a number of spin-off mythical figures, including the fabricated legend of the German Der Grossmann and variations of the fall of the tall man who was first introduced in 1979's Phantasm. But long before any of this, the people of the Dakota and Lakota have exchanged stories about Walking Sam. In these tales, he goes by multiple names, including Stove, Stovepipe Hat Bigfoot and simply Big Man. Here's an account of him by Ogala Lakota medicine man Pete Catches, taken from Peter Matheson's 1983 book about Pine Ridge and the spirit of Crazy Horse. There is your big man standing there, ever waiting, ever present, like the coming of a new day. He is both spirit and real being, but he can also glide through the forest like a moose with big antlers, as though the trees weren't there. I know him as my brother. I want him to touch me, just a touch, a blessing, something I could bring home to my sons and grandchildren that I was there, and I approached him, and he touched me. It's weird. Many in the community have linked reporting, reported appearances of Walking Sam to teens taking their own lives. In 2009, Walking Sam was alleged to have been spotted in the Pine Ridge community, which coincided with an occurrence of multiple teenage suicides. 
Blogger Mike Crowley described attending a meeting of the Tribal Council at the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation, where a tribeswoman asked government officials for help dealing with Walking Sam. One local woman, this is a guy from his testimony, who left before I could talk with her personally, asked Washington for help dealing with Walking Sam. The woman, who was elderly but otherwise quite lucid, described Walking Sam as a big man in a tall hat who has appeared around the reservation and caused young people to commit suicides. She said that Walking Sam has been picked up on the police scanners, but that the police have not been able to protect the community from him. She described him as a bad spirit. She wanted help from Washington with foot patrols for the tribal communities to protect them from Walking Sam. Later, Crowley describes researching Walking Sam at a local bookstore whose clerk cautioned him to be wary. She advised me that there really are bad spirits out there on the reservation, and you need to be careful. She said that if you go looking for them, they might just you might just find them. The anthropological roots of Walking Sam play a far more complex role than just functioning as spooky stories. Pete Catch's description of Big Man makes the spirit sound more like a protector of the forest than a god of death. Part Terra, Terra, part Totoro. I don't know what that is. As a supernatural entity, he is tied to the land, and the land has a very real impact on the lives of the Lakota. Writing of spending a week at Pine Ridge, Catholic chaplain Jeff Nixon praised the unseen yet vibrant Lakota spirituality all around us. Their sacred earth-honoring ways, inextricably connected with nature and all living creatures, reach far beyond humans and human institutions, he wrote. Although some of the traditional seven sacred rites of the Lakota have fallen out of favor, numerous others, such as the Vision Quest, continue to be practiced along with the Ghost Dance, a popular 19th-century hybrid of the traditional circle dance. After Lakota Sioux began practicing the ghost dance, members of the U.S. Cavalry attempted to quell the practice in a series of, wounded, of events that culminated in the events at Wounded Knee, which is part of Pine Ridge. And during the 1890 battle at Wounded Knee, U.S. soldiers gunned down hundreds of unarmed members of the Lakota Sioux tribe, primarily women and children. A century later, Wounded Knee was the site of a 1973 protest that led to a months-long standoff between American Indian activists and truth enforcement and law enforcement. Speaking the truth out about the suicides, Dr. Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart, awesome, described the area's tragic historical significance as a burden still carried by those living there today. Historical trauma is cumulative emotional and psychological wounding over the lifespan and across generations, emanating from massive group trauma. Native Americans have for over 500 years endured physical, emotional, social, and spiritual genocide from European and American colonialist policy. For the Lakota, these beliefs aren't just a result, aren't just a, re- <clears throat> a result of a whimsical belief in the supernatural. They're a way for members of the tribe to feel a connection to the land, as well as to their own tragic history. The spirituality of Pine Ridge is as political as it is mystical, and politics have played a more direct role in the fate of Pine Ridge than perhaps anywhere else in North America. It is also important to note that the economic circumstances of those in Ogallala, Lakota County which is the second poorest county in the U.S. A 2015 government survey estimated that 2,000 households in the Ogala Lakota tribe earn less than 30% of the national median, just $3,500 annually. Wow. 60% of the reservation's 30,000 residents live below the poverty line. The unemployment rate is 80 to 90%. Pine Ridge encompasses a portion of the famous South Dakota Badlands, Only 211 of the reservation's acrid 3,500 square feet 
square miles are farmable, and irrigation is hard to come by, as is clean water. Though the land produces plenty of agriculture, most of it is leased by the government's Bureau of Indian Affairs to farmers who live off of the reservation. In 2012, this resulted in less than a third of a $90 million Pine Ridge crop actually going to the residents of Pine Ridge. The impact of decades of this redirection of wealth has left the area with no viable economic structure and with devastating poverty levels. With tiny border towns existing solely to sell alcohol to community members, many of whom struggle with alcoholism, most of the financial aid Pine Ridge receives from the government goes directly to areas outside the reservation. Lakota children are reportedly being placed into foster care at alarmingly high rates in alleged violation of the Indian Child Welfare Act. The infant mortality rate is five times higher than the additional average, while rate of sexual assault is two times higher than average. Meanwhile, the life expectancy is just 48 years for men and 52 years for women, the lowest rate in the Western Hemisphere outside of Haiti. In April 2015, the White House designated Pine Ridge a promise zone to help expedite the region's economic recovery. But Dominique Allen Fenton, a high school English teacher and legal advocate on the reservation, believes the root of the mental health issues in Pine Ridge are much uglier racism. In a blog post on the recent suicides, Fenton cited numerous firsthand accounts of incidents of hostility or overt harassment by area law officials are non-Native Americans in recent months. In one incident in January, students and teachers from Pine Ridge were doused with beer, subjected to racial slurs, and asked to leave for their own protection while attending a hockey game off the reservation. 12-year-old Santana Janice, the youngest of the nine teens who recently took their own lives, was the victim of such racialized harassment shortly before her death. As reported in the Times on an overnight trip to Rapid City over the new year, a group of girls, including Santana, overheard a white woman call them filthy Indians as they passed through a hotel lobby. Our kids today just want to die because they're sick of all this oppression, her grandfather, Keith Janice, stated. Additionally, the families of Janice and other te- another teenage girl who committed suicide believe they were each cyberbullied prior to their deaths. There are a lot of reasons behind the suicides, poor bear told the Associated Press. The bullying at schools, the high empl- employment rate, parents need to discipline the children. Add high-profile examples of racism, the daily unreported microaggressions Native kids face, and the structural obstacles that extreme poverty creates, and you start to understand why suicide waves persist. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, suicide rates among Native Americans between the ages of 15 and 34 are nearly three times higher than the national average. One student told the Times that attempts among teens on the reservation are common. That said, the community response to suicide attempts has been swift and powerful. Last month, still declared a state of emergency, and agencies have deployed mental health volunteers to help staff the local hospital. Local students have also organized prayer chains. Yet, as Crowley cautioned, prayer and superstition won't touch the roots of a complex problem. Belief in bad spirits as a causative mechanism for untimely events among the Lakota is strong, he wrote. Walking Sam may be just one such explanation that resonates amongst some of the Lakota for teen suicides. It shouldn't distract the reader from the fact that people on the reservations are distraught. Whether Walking Sam represents Bigfoot, an evil spirit, or just a manifestation of the fear that people have about losing their loved ones to what seems an incomprehensible type of event, the teen suicides are real. Sounds, so sounds, uh, sounds like they got a lot of issues. Yeah. That's- one of the poorest spots in the United States. And, you know, it says a lot about Haiti, though, when it's you know, outside of Haiti. Right. Haiti's pretty bad. Yeah. Horrible. 
No way. It sounds it sounds pretty dismal and right. desolate. What's your thoughts on that though? Well, I mean, I, with the the whole spirit thing and the as far as that side of it, I think that we do tend to um, sort of personify a lot of things in our lives. Yeah, you know, especially with, with any kind of extreme situations or emotions or you know, just things that are hard to cope with and deal with. It's a lot easier to you know have a boogeyman to hate on than it is to right look at a pile of issues that size and try to figure out how to deal with it or yeah find something to blame mm-hmm. for it i mean uh, like there's so many issues like there's the poverty issue there's the racism issue uh there's you know this unemployment rate of 80 to 90% there's alcoholism there's i mean the, the, some of the reserva- the these reservations are just i mean they're, they're horrible places so you can see why somebody would would want to get out of there by one of two ways, right? By growing up and getting out or by killing yourself. You know, I mean, that's that's pretty much, in some ways, your only option. Or there's another option, possibly, of, of doing something and making you better there. But there's also a lot of issues with that, too. Uh, especially with, uh, like, you know, the whole wounded knee thing. I mean, the, the standoff there in the 1970s. Uh, that was something that these people, I mean, they... They stood up for against getting abused by this like tribal council or this like strong man on the reservation that pretty much was just using it as his own as his own fiefdom and just taking the money that he was getting from the federal government and then basically you know preying on the people or just plying them with alcohol so they were all just you know drunk all the time and complacent. all the complacent yeah exactly. Uh, now the the tall man or the the walking Sam thing. One of the things I heard on the Grayley report, and Micah talked about this, was like apparently he will go up to your window and look in at night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I also like I also like the description of him as a Bigfoot wearing like a yeah, top, stone, hat. Stone top hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, here's what that makes me think of a little bit is that there's these kind of um, creatures, like especially like um, in voodoo, there's one of the, I can't remember the name of it. It's like Papa something. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and like he's he's a skeleton and he wears a top hat, okay? And then there's also this phenomenon of like the hat man, which is like the shadow person that people will see, and he looks like he's wearing a hat, you know, so like, what's the whole deal with the, uh, what's the whole deal with the motif of the hat? Yeah, I mean, that's just a strange <laughs> thing. Top hats are just sinister. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> but then also the uh, the connection to Slender Man. Um, obviously, Walking Sam has been around for a while. You know, he's one of those things. Uh, he's a, he has a very folkloric element to him. Uh, Slender Man, which we've talked about on the slow show before, obviously was made up right, that's at the a, end of the 2000s, right? Right, it's not an urban legendy folklore. Yeah. We know who created it. Right, it was the creepy pasta guys that somebody made it, and they just it became this thread, and people jumped on the bandwagon. But yet, there's kids out there, especially those kids that try to, you know, remember the kids that try to kill the other kid, mm-hmm. that will see, now people see Slender Man. Right, and so it, it harkens back to that whole belief is powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, enough people believe in something, maybe it does start to manifest. And, right. 
There's the idea of uh, the archetype, uh, like Carl Jung's idea of the archetype, that where we manifest these things or that they have a certain symbolism to us. There's a universal symbolism there mm-hmm. that's across cultures. So like, that's, the, and that's kind of how I believe about the Bigfoot thing. Just right. I mean, you know, people talk about how it's it's present everywhere on the on the planet, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's because it's an animal that's present everywhere on the planet. But maybe there's some, you know, deep seated like ancestral memories or something. Yeah, you know, that's that, that's the thing that I was going to bring up. There was that there were at one time we sh- as humans we shared this world with other primates Lots other them, other yeah. uh, and other hum, other hominids other humanoids yeah just a couple hundred thousand years ago right so they so they're probably if if bigfoot is not a real creature it may be this memory that we have and that somehow like the whole concept of the tulpa like we bring these things into being like ourselves through our collective unconscious through our psyche through whatever um it's interesting stuff uh, you know they talked about my michael talked about in the grayling report about uh I mentioned the mad gasser before. And apparently like the mad gasser was like this creature that would go up and gas people. And you just smell like this horrible smell and the people would pass out apparently. And then there was this other creature called spring Hill Jack and spring Hill Jack apparently was like real tall. And he would like, he's called spring Hill because like he could jump on his feet. So it looked like he was like on springs jumping around like you jump across buildings and stuff. And people said that they saw these things. And this was in like 19th century, late 19th century Britain and London. Kind of like a Jack the Ripper kind of figure. Right. And again, you know, you've got that you've got that black figure, that all in black with the hat. And you know, like they said, the shadow people. We talked about the gin before on this show, which was a really interesting one. Um so yeah. Interesting stuff. <laughs> I'm sure there, Luke would have a witty comment. <laughs> like, oh, dude, I'm real tired, man. <laughs> I've been skating all day. <laughs> saw Spring Heel Jack at the skate park. Oh, I saw that, dude. <laughs> all right, Rob. Well, we're going to take a break here. And, uh, guys, we'll be right back with uh, Scott Bennett. We're going to talk about the UBS scandal. We're going to talk about Shell Game. We're back on Conspiracy Normal. All right, we're back on Conspiracy Normal, guys. And on the line, we have, via Skype, Mr. Scott Bennett. Now, Scott is what we would call a whistleblower, someone that uh, reveals certain activities that have been covered up uh, maliciously and that he reveals those malicious activities and brings them into the light, uh, kind of in the long range of somebody like Daniel Ellsberg, who uh, dropped the Pentagon Papers back in the 70s, or more recently, everybody knows, uh, Edward Snowden. So, Scott, welcome to the Conspiracy Normal. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Adam. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I really wanted to get started with, since we kind of have a limited amount of time, about kind of like your background and your background in psychological warfare, uh, working for the Bush administration. I think that's important for everybody to understand where you've been, what you've done. 
Yeah. Well, I came out from California after I completed my uh, bachelor's degree in advertising with a double major in film. I had worked at 20th Century Fox, Dark Horse Comics, advertising, uh, things that were very similar to psychological warfare. And I had, I had done that in California and San Francisco and San Jose and Southern California. And I had just got the political itch, the, the political fever when I saw the Clinton administration in the 90s. And it was, uh, you know, amplified in uh, the late 90s. And I thought, I, I, I want to get involved with political communication because so much of the Clinton ideology was so perverse and unnatural and wrong and economically foolish. I thought, my God, if we keep following these idiots, our whole yeah. country is going to fall apart. And and I had a little bit of a cowboy attitude. I was raised in California and, and uh, you know, California for as liberal as some people try and brand it. It really is a cowboy state uh, in, in a lot of the old West fashion, up, at least up in the North Pacific Northwest. Um, we, we were the last frontier of, of the, the entire uh, nation. So we have a rugged independence that, that is uh, very utilitarian, libertarian oriented, and it was a Republican state. So I grew up in a conservative, uh, you know, cauldron. So I moved out to Washington, D.C., packing a bag and wanted to get into political communication and started pounding the pavement to get connected to uh, conservative organizations, Heritage Foundation, Family Research Council, Concerned Women for America, uh, the Phyllis Schlafly Eagle Forum. There's like a okay. hundred different organizations out there in Washington that I had heard on the radio. And this is 1998. So this is before the Internet and stuff really was, was taken off. Right. OK. And. I got out to Washington, you know, sort of hungry and wanting to go into political communication, lobbying. I wasn't quite sure. I just knew, you know, I had a sword in hand and I was ready to travel and go to battle with, with uh, what I thought was wrong. And I ran into a lot of incompetent people, incompetent conservatives, parasitic conservatives, people that, that weren't really that smart and engaged. It was it was almost like, you know, and I know it sounds sort of naive, like, well, that's the way it is in Washington. But when you're going out to a fight, you're looking for fellow fighters. You're looking for, you know, gladiators that are going to come alongside you and say, yeah, we're, we're fighting as hard as we can. Instead, I, I kind of walked into a, a bureaucracy of conservative Republicans, and I saw it. I worked at the Republican National Committee for a while. So all of that was a learning experience for the, uh, the effeminacy, I thought, of a lot of the Republican conservative uh, people. There was no real grit. And I always, I always had it, and I always maintained it, and I, I always will. But it also had me sharp elbows, and I, I uh, you know, sort of always thrashed about and, and, and uh, you know, fought. But it, I was very successful. I, uh, I took a long course from 1998 up in, uh, you know, 1998 to 2001. I was doing my master's degree. I was working at uh, the Heritage Foundation. I did a lot of. Uh, academic work with USAID, CIA, a lot of stuff you know I don't talk about. Uh, I went over to Europe. I, I then joined the Bush administration and got my doctorate in political theory and wow. studied a lot of uh, social science uh, research relating to family and marriage. And, and I was always sort of synthesizing the conservative ethos of family and economics and, and national security uh, into, into my communication. Now, there, 
you know, some one thing that people really need to understand is the difference between the neoconservative class and the conservative class. Right. And the difference is, as you you know, probably well, is that the conservatives, the real conservatives believe in in conserving uh, the bank and capital of nations, the, the wealth of our history and the tradition and heritage, because there's so much good and energy and, and purity in that that we don't want to lose because it's almost like self-lobotomizing if we do. Uh, and the neoconservatives are of the, the thought, like Francis Fukuyama, which was a professor when I was doing my master's at George Mason, who in fact worked under uh, at the Mason Enterprise Center. I was made director of special projects of a lot of our economic development work. Yeah, I believe his he, book was The End of History. That's what it was right. called. That's yeah. right. And that was really the catalyst for a lot of the neoconservative theory, uh, just as the Bush administration was standing up. And that was, we know everything there is to know about history. We know everything there is to know about economics, human nature, political organization, because we're at the zenith of civilized life. So now there's nothing else to learn. Let's take what we've got and... Uh, dominate, conquer, evangelize the rest of the world with right. a neoconservative ideology, and it had it tried to compartmentalize religion, it tried to compartmentalize sexuality and marriage and family, and make everything and everyone uh, an expression of economic uh, drones or economic uh, you know formulaic thinking, and. That that was that's really shallow and foolish because it doesn't take into consideration the other organic variables of human life, such as the evolution of of personality through time and the intermixing of persons and family and and community and myth and lore and and spiritual uh, enrichment. So many of the invisible uh, tangibles, the invisible tangibles, they are there. Uh, that are expressed in nature, for example. You know, nature is an expression of the imagination of God in, in a lot of, uh, you know, religious analysis. And it's translated into, you know, pantheism and Hinduism in some expressions. But all those things were part of uh, the, the conservative value of humanity. And the neoconservatives replaced that. So not to go on a rabbit trail, but I, I really started learning the difference between the neoconservatives and let's flash forward. In 2001, we had the, quote, September 11th attacks. Right. And I was like everyone. I drank the Kool-Aid. I thought it was real. I thought the attacks were real. But I came to discover much later they were false based on the scientific evidence and the and the excellent work that's been done by Barbara Honiger and Susan Lindauer and Alan Sprosky and Richard Gage and Jim Fetzer and on and on and on, Judy Wood. Yeah, we've had and, Fetzer on the show. Yep. Yeah, yeah, Jim Fetzer's a good friend and uh, – you know, they they sort of reached out to me and brought me into Veterans Truth Network. And that, you know, Stu Webb is a great guy and his whole network has been hacked and shut down. So there are a lot of attacks that are going on with people that are standing up and fighting and making things known and sharing with their fellow citizens. Uh, so we are in an information war and we're being we're being shot at. Now, the the counteraction to that is overwhelming these shooters uh, in the communication sense, overwhelming them with your mass reinforcements, which are your audience. So everyone that listens to your show that knows you needs to take a part, you know, take a weapon and stand at post and fire communication cannonballs, emails, letters, blog posts, phone calls 
at these agencies and these congressmen who are associated with uh, surveillance and counterterrorism and, and FBI oversight and Department of Justice oversight, because those are the, the lead agencies of the Obama administration that are being used to attack the, uh, the alternative media type folks, if you will. Right. Well, let me ask you, Scott, you, you were in the Bush administration, and then at a certain point, you joined the Army. And, yeah. and, and fairly, like, late in life, uh, well, like, as far as, like, usually someone joins the Army when they're, like, 18, but I believe you were in your 30s by the time you actually joined. Yeah, I, I had been in the Civil Air Patrol from 14 to 18, so I got early military training in high school, and then I, I had a, uh appointment to the Air Force Academy at, that I didn't take. That was back in 1989-90. Uh, okay. And I, I just changed from pilotage, and I'd, I'd done a lot of military. I wanted to go into the the advertising communication realm so i pursued the private sector life but then after 2001 all this happened and i had an impulse to apply what i knew in advertising communication creative thought i was very good at influencing people my master's degree had been on psychological operations and economic development how do you send messages into people's brains that cause them to want to do economic development and culture development rather than kinetic combat operations, rather than what we see in ISIS and Libya, these wild savage Indians running around cutting people's heads off and raping women. How do we how do we stop people from wanting to do that and kill the guys who do do it and uh, create, you know, peaceful uh, economic development, you know, persons and tribes? So it's very complicated when you deal with the Islamic mind, but it's not impossible if you're smart. And sadly, we have very few smart people in the military and the intelligence agencies that that followed what I did with with other military guys. But I went into the military as a direct commission officer. I got a direct commission like they give to right. the military lawyers and uh, doctors. And I was 38 years old, but I had to go through all the Army training. So it was tough. I bet. I felt, I felt like Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Guy half my age. Yeah, that's kind of what Colonel Kurtz was that age, I believe, in the, in the movie. Yeah, yeah, that's what made yeah. me think of what it made me think of, actually. Yeah, so I, I ran the hills and puked my guts out and went through everything I could go through. But it was it was it was really wonderful training because they were all Army Special Forces and Rangers that that trained me, and and uh, it was a very good good uh, experience. And it allowed me to learn everything about military tactics and strategy and operational systems and what the bureaucracy of the military is really, and then infuse into it what I was doing at Heritage Foundation, then the Bush administration, and then Booz Allen Hamilton. I had been hired out of Booz Allen Hamilton to join a team uh, of psychological warfare analysts head by a guy named Colonel Jeff Jones. Colonel Jeff Jones was really the Colonel Kurtz of the psychological warfare community. He was a brilliant man. He had been on the NS, the National Security Council. He had been the father of modern PSYOP, of every military operation we'd had in the last 15, 20 years, Haiti, Bosnia, uh, Somalia, uh, you know, everywhere you could imagine. And he had seen me at uh, the Pentagon when I gave a briefing uh, to General My Dick Myers and Donald Rumsfeld, and I got a call shortly after that and I was invited to join his team and et cetera, et cetera. And shortly, about six months to eight months after that, I, uh, I joined his team and I joined Booz Allen Hamilton. And at that point, he said, we're going to also put you through military training, get you a, 
a direct commission, so you learn everything that the military is doing, and you get a top-secret clearance and this and that. So I was always serving my country. I wasn't doing any of this for personal gain. I wasn't doing it for pro professional you know, monetary enrichment. Everything was a sacrifice, and I did it because I thought my country's at war. We've been attacked. Somebody's got to get into positions of influence to generate psychological warfare that destroys the, the capabilities of combatants to think and be able to perform kinetic operations against us and at the same time uh, persuade our allies to be on our side. So I joined a team of people that were doing that. A lot of them were very, very good. They were colonels and lieutenant colonels and majors in the army that had just gotten out and we were all on the same sheet of music. However, everybody in the Bush administration was on the wrong sheet of music. Yeah. But we, uh, we, you know, we kept shaking our heads and we kept running into, you know, it was like we're told to drive down these roads, but they've littered them with nails. So we're stopped and we're, we're not able to, to implement what we're, we're trying to do. So we produced an enormous amount of intellectual material, uh, analysis papers on the, the Islamic uh, threat, the Islamic um, radical jihadists, the Sunni Wahhabists. But the Bush administration kept stopping us from proceeding. Why? Why would they? Why would they do that? It, it, it's like I mean, I, I I think I know why. But for our audience that may not understand that, it's like it seems so counterproductive. Like, aren't these the people we're supposed to be fighting? Well, there's two explanations. Either they were sorely ignorant and just fools, way above their head, who didn't know anything about uh, psychology or communications or military operations, and yet they occupy the highest levels in the Bush administration. Or they knew full well yeah. that if we were unleashed, we would stop the war by killing the enemy inside his head first and foremost within a matter of months. And the wars would have been over and there would be nothing to do because everybody would be contained. The Islamic jihadis would see they would be saturated with messages that persuaded them to believe that any operation they engaged in against a Jew or Christian or any U.S. Uh, personnel – would guarantee them to go to the torments of the grave and uh, they would be eliminated from paradise and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you and, would have used like passages from the Quran and absolutely. to demonstrate that. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That's the key to influencing them is, is starting it from, you know, injecting the tree from the inside and letting it come out the branches and the fruit. And that is using the, legal, scholarly, religious uh, experts, and, uh, and, and there are a lot of them uh, that, uh, you know, laid out a lot of legal theory about how the jihadi Wahhabists were doing things that were really not Islamic, and they were, they were haram, they were forbidden, they were takfir, they were right. musidun, they, right. were, they were things that were uh, damning to the Muslims. Now, these are coming from Muslim scholars and experts that don't necessarily like the United States or Western civilization, but they do love their own people. And when they see them doing bad things that are going to harm them, quote, in their afterlife, they step up and, yeah. and try and correct them. This reminds so, me of Operation Phoenix from Vietnam, where they would play uh, recordings that were uh, supposedly like Vietnamese ghosts to try to lure the Viet Cong out of the out of the yeah. jungle. Yeah, and that's precisely what would have would work in the Islamic mind because they're paranoid of anything occultic, magic, uh, anything that has a flavor of the uh, invisible, you know, realm. Uh, yeah. 
so many threads that you could pull on that would disassemble them like a cheap blanket. And that's what we did. And that's what we were, you know, brainstorming and putting together. But the Bush administration wouldn't use it. And I'm convinced a lot of it, too. You know, you have a lot of things that are now just becoming known that we knew about in 2008, 2009. Man Love Thursday, the pedophilia, the T-boys, all these guys. It's such a it's such a corruption in their own uh, culture and being. But it's also the ideal way to make them look like laughing stock, uh, laughing stock, you know, pedophile, you know, deranged individuals. But Bush and the and his people wouldn't follow the counter, the counter homosexual, the counter boy raping narrative that we were devo- developing, for instance, because it ran politic- it ran against their political correct notions. Right. That's what was different. The neoconservative Bush administration had a lot of gay people in their in their ranks, and they didn't want to do anything that could label that could even draw attention to you know, man, boy, love, or, or man, love Thursday, or, you know, anything of a sexual nature, even though it's being broadcast to a different culture. That's right. And I remember people at heritage foundation that, that were close confidants of mine, when I would brief them on some of this stuff, they, they would say, well, why aren't we using that to, to, to uh, communicate to our own people in America and Europe uh, to, and other nations to build a case against them? And I kept having to say they don't want to do it because it's it's politically incorrect. And I remember a colonel that worked at Special <clears throat> Operations Command. She was a far left sort of lesbian type, and she threw out a lot of the work that we're doing. Refused to implement it. Had we implemented it, you would have a different Middle East, different war that you got today. But they've just been they haven't put out the fire. They've been they've been spraying it with a little water to make it smoky but then they've given it time to breathe and reignite the problem is every time it reignites it it doesn't turn back into a fire it turns into a huge inferno and then it's taken more ground and that ground is our national reputation so never before in the history of the united states have we been so blackened and and tarred by libya by iraq now by syria uh, and Syria is going to be the real change, the real game changer, because you see Russia, Iran, and China <laughs> stepping in to contain this cancer of ISIS. Yeah, I agree. My, my, my co-host Luke has a has a has so, a question for you. And yes, Luke is here, everybody. Hi, he, hi, hi. <laughs> uh, so, uh, man, man, love Thursday is actually a real thing. Like they they really do that. Yeah, Thursday is the day when Allah looks away from their sins so they can get a free pass and do anything they want. And at anybody that's served, you can ask. And any, especially any military policeman who's worked at some of the detention centers will confirm that on Thursday it turns into a Sodom and Gomorrah. The guards <laughs> wow. with each other, the inmates with each other. And remember this. They do not follow a homosexual practice similar to the San Francisco gay parades where it's their rainbow flag waving identity and this is who we are and we want to get married and we want to be treated like, uh, you know, man and woman. That's not the Islamic uh, definition of of homosexuality. That's the U.S. That's the Western civilized, hey, you know, if you're gay, you can, you know, marry men and you can build a little house and you can live together. Uh, that's different than their Man Love Thursday, where they see sexual t- 
tension relieving, that relief as a common practice that Habibis, best friends, you know, girls say best friends forever, you know, on these these uh, uh-huh. Twitter things. The Muslim male says Habibi, which is best friend forever. And that's almost like a kissing, you know, fondling <laughs> uh, boyfriend. But that that they they also have wives or they're also looking, you know, for women. Now, they don't look at women as beings to completely bond their soul with, to be intimate in exchanging their emotional, uh, you know, intimacies and such with. They see women as simply pods to be fertilized to produce children. And because they produce children, they're blessed and they have a favor with Allah. But if a woman screws around on the man, the woman has to be killed because the man can't get into heaven. That's why you yeah. see so many honor killings. We always it's not, about, it's not about honor at all. It's about the man having a paranoid delusion about not getting into heaven if his woman uh, is sexually, uh, you know, promiscuous or screws around. We always thought our military buddies were just messing around with us. On yeah, we had that. a common friend. Luke and I have a common friend that was in Afghanistan, and he reported like certain things like that to us too. Like guys would kiss each other and. Yep. You know, yeah. we, we, we didn't yeah. think it was as serious. There was a report that actually came out. I, I heard on another podcast that uh, one of the problems in Afghanistan has been we've kind of looked the other way while some of yeah. these policemen that we've been training, like, actually have sex with little boys. Yeah. And now it's an it's that. an accepted cultural practice. Yeah. yeah, it is. You've seen the reports. And, and I mean, I reported that to Jason Chavitz, Congressman Jason Chavitz. Uh, Congressman Saxby Shambliss. I reported all that to them. Uh, I did a lengthy analytical report on homosexuality and the don't ask, don't tell policy, how that would inflame our radical enemies uh, because they could now say the U.S. is coming in to homosexualize our our country. Uh, Again, there's a big difference between Mm. our, what they say we are versus what they do. What they do, they see as just a normal, you know, it's like drinking a beer and, you know, you say, oh, well, I really shouldn't drink a beer, but I do. Or, you know, look at a little pornography or something like that. They look at that as as uh, a relief of right. their daily stresses. And they, they, you know, they that's the way they look at it. And I wrote a report on that and I sent it up the food chain and the military and the political systems and they all ignored it. And it wasn't until recently when you had the special forces soldier, the officer, by by the way, I think who threw down on the ground that Afghan commander who had chained a boy to his bed as a sex slave had kidnapped. Yeah. That was the story that, yeah, that was the story that I heard. Yeah. And they've tried to run that guy out of the military and his Sergeant, uh, like they did to me. Now I'm still fighting. Of course, I'm still in court and I'm never going to let this go until the whole thing is reversed. Uh, But they've done what they've done to me. They're doing to other men of honor and, you know, family values and such who stand up and say, no, you will not rape and kidnap a boy and use the American FOB, the American forward operating base as your sex, you know, room. Perish this the thought. A, yeah, <laughs> that's what we're doing. And, and uh, no Jeez. wonder people join the Taliban because it never happened under the Taliban. It's well, only me- happening now. Well, I want to talk to you about what happened to you when you got transferred to Florida. Uh, the charge, these kind of like trumped up charges that they tried to get you on, and they actually managed to put you in jail or federal prison. 
what exactly were they? Why did they do that to you, first of all? And then what was the charges? Well, I had been working in the State Department uh, counterterrorism office, and I was the liaison officer to U.S. Special Operations Command up in Washington, D.C., and then I had went and done my army training, and when I got back, they had said, we want to shift you down into counterterrorism threat finance, implementing uh, psychological warfare into the threat finance dimension. And uh, I you know, don't talk about anything classified, but it, it basically was, you're going to be in charge of looking for all money supplies, money donors, money banks, hawalas, every country that contributes money to the uh, Islamic uh, fight at U.S. Central Command. So every Muslim in U.S. Central Command, which is, uh, you know, Libya, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Iraq, uh, Syria, Iran, all of that region, all the money that was going to bad guys who were doing bad things to our soldiers, I was in charge of, or one of the guys in charge of uh, tracking those and stopping right. those. That's very important to, to mention, stopping them and, right. and arresting them. Whenever I found, you know, a little fire, I was to put it out. I was to, uh, you know, set up the targeting and, and do everything. So I looked at it like whack-a-mole. Okay, I'm whack-a-mole, but I'm an octopus, right? So I'm going to hit multiple ones at one time. Well, they didn't like that because I went in and started my position, and I started tracking things down, and I started challenging a lot of the status quo. I saw a lot of dysfunctionality, a lot of stove piping. And my boss was Dove Zakheim. Dove Zakheim was the Pentagon comptroller who lost supposedly $2.3 trillion that supposedly was rerouted to Israeli Mossad uh, armaments and other things. And Quote, unquote, lost $3.2 trillion. Yeah. Well, the yeah. auditors who were tracking that, of course, were all killed in the Pentagon attack. They were in the skiff that was hit that was uh, not done by a myth, not done by a plane. It was done by a missile combination explosion. So our own military were killed because they were tracking this uh, this money trail. And I've talked extensively to Barbara Honiger and others who know everything about the Pentagon attacks. Yeah. And you walk away knowing it was a it was an internal plant detonation uh, with a missile or drone that had exploded. So it wasn't a plane, but so we somebody within our own military, our own political establishment, gave the green light to kill our own men in uniform. Right there, you have the you have the grounds for a major French Revolution in this country, where everybody serving the military should stand up and demand a legal investigation and demand that their politicians who represent them step in and support soldiers who request that. Because when we put our lives on the line, when we swear an oath, when we put on the uniform. It's with the understanding we're not going to get stabbed in the back. We're not going to have a missile fly into a skiff when we're doing work that our fellow that's going to benefit our fellow citizens. That's how horrendous the scandal is or was. Yeah. And uh, Dove Zakheim was my boss, and he was down at U.S. Central Command handling the money. Uh, so I I went down and I was briefed about who he was and what he uh, what he was involved with and his whole character. And I didn't realize, uh, you know, how dirty and and all the things that they were doing, and a lot of contractor fraud, and and uh, anyway, I, I started making a lot of noise and filing reports, uh, and I, I won't go into a lot of that uh, specifically because it's still going in the court system, and and you got to be careful with what you say, but 
about about four months after I had gotten down and was doing my job, uh, I was stopped at the front gate at McDill driving in, and my car was searched against my will. They accused me of a DUI, which was totally false. It, it was thrown out uh, okay. because there was no there was no evidence, there was no alcohol, and I knew that. And I thought it was a test. I thought I was down there being tested because I had a top secret clearance. And I was going to be deployed. But next thing I know, I'm stopped, and I've, I'm uh, sent into the Tampa Police Department. I get out, and I go back to base. I'm stopped a second time, ordered out of my car at gunpoint, and kidnapped onto base where I'm interrogated for the next 10, 12 hours. Uh, and again, I think this is all a test. And I'm, you know, say I, this is a big misunderstanding because uh, I had, I had uh, uh, some guns in my car that, had, that, was being, that were being registered. And they essentially said, well, you're living on base and we don't have your forms and your orders. And I said, well, I'm with Booz Allen Hamilton and I'm an Army Reserve officer. And they said, well, until we get this all figured out, you're going to be removed from base. So they, they removed, me, removed me from base. And then within a day, Booz Allen Hamilton fired me because wow. they, had, they had removed me from base. And I said, how can you fire me? They've removed me from base for a, for a base housing form that you, Booz Allen Hamilton, helped me facilitate. And I uh -huh. was transferring as an Army officer. So there was a lot of weird uh, – you know, paperwork issues. This isn't, this isn't, uh, you're being accused of talking. You're being accused of stealing. You're being accused of actions against the United States. This is, Hey, you've gotten down here and you're living on base in your housing form. We say hasn't been filled out properly. So we're going to terminate you and yank you off base and suspend your security clearance. That was essentially what they did. And the next thing I know, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, given a, a lawyer called uh, David Shalala, who was Donna Shalala's nephew. Donna Shalala uh, late, was later discovered as working at the Bush or the uh, Clinton Foundation. She was Clinton's Health and Human Services Secretary. Uh, okay, she's, right. She's high level up there. And uh, David Shalala was my lawyer because he was down in Florida. And I think a lot of this was preconceived. And I thought it was all going to be thrown out. I was told by him, well, they're just embarrassed about some things. Uh, you know, this will all go away. And the next thing I know, I'm charged with making a false statement on a housing form. And it was 100-1, a felony, making a false statement. As if an FBI agent came in and questioned me and I lied to him. That's the same law that they used against me for filling out my housing form. And wow. I went to court and I, I kept saying to my lawyers, you know, what's going on? How come I'm here? Where are the military lawyers? I should have military coming in. I've made requests. And I kept being told, don't worry about it. It's going to go away. Don't make noise. You know, this is a this is a, a political embarrassment because they they've just had this major uh, Nadal Hassan or whatever on Texas shoot up a base. Yeah, Fort so Hood. Saying, yeah. You know, your housing wasn't quite right. And I'm saying this is really weird, but you know what? I'm, I'm going to let it settle out. But I, that was foolish because I should have fought like a like a rabid dog, because once they get you in the court, then you are you're basically in the tar pit and you don't realize it until the end when a jury of half retarded people who don't know anything <laughs> about the military don't know anything about top secret clearances. And they just know, well, this guy's in in a federal court charge and the military are coming in and trying to prosecute him. 
uh, he must have done something wrong. So they voted me guilty. Now, so ha had you been in a military tribunal, uh, no, would th no. they would they would probably have not found you guilty? Well, the military tribunal would have never even charged me because there was not a gotcha. single violation of a military action. That, okay. that came out like nine months later. I, I, you know, they they put me into this federal prison, and the whole time I'm banging on the the door saying, "Get me a military lawyer. You guys have no right to have me in here. I was on a military base. I'm a military officer." Right. And nine months later, I finally got a hearing, and the military lawyer who represented me say, "I'm not going to tackle any of that. I'm just going to." Uh, say you you know you shouldn't be discharged, and I said, well, wait a minute, this isn't about discharge. This is about why I'm in prison in the first place. I shouldn't even be here. So I kept running into people that were sorely incompetent and stupid, or they were on the take, or they were paranoid of who I was and what I did and what I knew. But I'll tell you this: this is the ironic, you know, uh, miraculous situation. When I went into Florida and they found me guilty, they immediately threw me into prison and they were supposed to send me out to California. However, when I got out to Oklahoma, the bus turned around and I went to Pennsylvania. And when I was at Pennsylvania, I met Brad Birkenfeld, the Swiss banker who had brought right. 52,000 bank accounts that were used in terrorist financing, money laundering, offshore accounts, all sorts of things. That was my and next question. Do you feel... Like they put you in, or they, you weren't in the same cell, but you were in the same prison. Do you feel we that were, you guys we were, were put same, together? Well, uh, it was it was a divine it was a divine moment of getting put together. Uh, the jury is still out on uh, on uh, if we were put put there together by uh, by white hats, uh, but there were a lot of other people at that prison that were political that were there for political reasons. Um, okay. people that had been persecuted by Chris Christie. And it, it was, it was very strange. I mean, I was up with lawyers and doctors and stockbrokers, but I was the only military guy, uh, who was there for military related stuff. There were why was, why was Birkenfeld there? Well, Brad Birkenfeld was there because he brought over 52,000 bank accounts from Switzerland to Eric Holder and Lanny Brewer. And he did okay. that after, he had been targeted by the CIA, and Edward Snowden was part of the CIA team that targeted him. You can't make this up, but you wow. track it, and you see these pieces uh, were in full play. The American media won't talk about it, but RT and Press TV and some of the alternative uh, channels that I've interviewed with have. They've actually reported it. But Edward Snowden worked with the CIA in Geneva, Switzerland, and Brad Birkenfeld was a UBS whistleblower. He was making a lot of noise because UBS was doing, again, a lot of shady stuff with their money. And CIA had approached Birkenfeld, got him into a social environment, got him drunk, got him in a DUI. And the next day, a CIA agent walked into the, into the jail cell, flashed his CIA badge and got him out. This was told to me by Brad Birkenfeld himself. Okay. And Snowden uh, came out and reported the same story to Glenn Greenwald. Now, Birkenfeld had fled the CIA, fled Geneva, Switzerland, and reported this to Eric Holder and Lanny Brewer, the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice, instead of embracing him, they cobbled together a charge against him because he had went into the state. I mean, his whole story is miraculous because he went into the Department of Justice to say, give me a subpoena and I can tell you everything. They said, we do not want your subpoena. Get out. Now, 
Imagine that. Here's a guy coming over with all with a treasure chest of Swiss bank accounts of every bad guy in the world, and the Department of Justice is not going to subpoena that to say, yes, we want to know it? Yeah. They kicked him out. He goes to this SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission. They say no and kick him out. He goes to the IRS. They say no and kick him out. He finally gets to Senator Charles Grassley uh, and Senator Carl Levin, and uh, Senator Barack Obama was on that committee, the Senate Permanent Investigations Committee, and they give him a subpoena, and he goes behind closed doors, and he tells his story. And within uh, a, a matter of months after that, the FBI or the Department of Justice say, you didn't tell us about this client, Alenikoff. We're going to charge you with conspiring to hide taxes. And he said, I came over and told you all of this stuff. Here it's in the e- email document list. What are you What are you doing? And they said, no, 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 all that's classified because it was behind closed doors. So we're going to charge you. Take a plea. And he's he's just like a deer in the headlights that's been hit by a rock. And he doesn't know what is up and what is down and what's right and what's left. He's stunned. And yet they're, they, they're treating this like a normal everyday thing. They're charging him with 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 material that he gave to them at a Senate hearing. Incidentally, they did the same thing to Joe Naccio, the Quest Communications president, who came forth and said uh, Snowden's revelation about NSA vindicated him because Joe Naccio was Quest Communications president. The NSA had approached him trying to get list of his customers, and he uh-huh. said no, and they threw him in jail. Wow. Whoa, said, wow. Yeah. None <laughs> of his material they would allow as his defense because it was classified. So Joe Naccio had to spend time in prison because he, he couldn't defend himself with the material that would have proven NSA was violating the constitution. And they were simply threatening him. And because he wouldn't play ball, they, they, they dogpiled on him and put him in jail. Uh, they, they did the same thing <clears throat> to Joe, uh, Birkenfeld. They, they did the same thing to me, but I wouldn't play ball. I didn't take a plea deal. I fought in court, and that's what saved me because in fighting, yeah, they can throw me into prison for a while, but when I get out, I'm still in the game. I'm still in the legal fight, and they're on defensive. They're right. on the run, and it's only a matter of time until my chess pieces get them into a corner, and it's at last you have no fight. You violated the Constitution. You did something that's never been done in the history of the United States. You threw a military officer in prison for something he did as, as part of his duty. That's like giving a guy a speeding ticket who's driving a tank in Iraq. You don't have <laughs> jurisdiction. So that's the fight that will eventually come to pass. But uh, Birkenfeld was in prison. I met him over six months. We put all this together. And I said, Brad, you're, you're the golden goose I was looking for. And when we talked and he discovered, you know, all of his material should have come to me, but never was because wow. Eric Holder and Lanny Brewer forbid it. Build they it forbid back. any of his intelligence to go to the military. Why? Because Lanny Brewer and Eric Holder worked for a law firm called Covington and Burling before they joined the Obama administration. Covington and Burling was the law firm that represented UBS and HSBC. So the law firm that represents these terrorist financing banks uh, told Eric Holder and Lanny Brewer with Hillary Clinton to throw Birkenfeld in prison. And they did. That's the other reason. They, they, these people were in government positions and totally betrayed 
an American citizen. Hillary Clinton is now going to fall for this because of all of her emails that they're now covering, they're finding, and I've been in touch with Judicial Watch and, and those who are doing the FOIA requests. All of her emails are going to contain uh, things uh, including Brad Birkenfeld, Union Bank of Switzerland, uh, the WikiLeaks cables that came out that Birkenfeld gave to me, all talked about Hillary Clinton working to get a political solution, get treaty status preferential with the Swiss, and get Chinese Ugar terrorists released to Switzerland, all in exchange for throwing Birkenfeld under the bus. And on top of that, Hillary Clinton got money from Union Bank of Switzerland. Uh, Barack Obama got money from Union Bank of Switzerland. Uh, Eric Holder got his job back. Lanny Brewer got his job back. Now, when I was reporting all this, I was sending it up to the House Armed Services Committee. Well, who do you think worked on the House Armed Services Committee? The uh, son, the son of my old boss, Dove Zakheim. Dove Zakheim. A guy named Roger Zakheim. He worked at the House Armed Services Committee, is getting my reports that are talking about his good old dad, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton Terrace Financing, uh, UBS, Swiss Banks, and Covington and Burling. And what does this guy do with my reports? He doesn't do the constitutional thing. He doesn't do the American thing. He does the traitor thing, and nothing gets up. And next thing you know, Roger Zakheim gets hired by who? Covington and Burling. So he leaves the House Armed Services Committee and walks across the street, and now he is working with Lanny Brewer and Eric Holder and Michael Chertoff in Covington and Burling, representing Union Bank of Switzerland, HSBC, and all these banks that the Saudis and the Gulf nations are using to channel money to uh, fuel their jihad in Syria, in Libya, and elsewhere. So let me make sure I have this right. These banks are sending the money to this to these terrorist organizations are indirectly through the middlemen of these terrorist organizations. Oh, it's, Me- it's like a yeah. Meanwhile, we've got our own senators, our own politicians that have their hands also tied to these same very same banks. Well, that's why Bert Boehner was was relieved. That's why Boehner has retired. It's got yeah. nothing to do with it. It's Boehner had a Swiss bank account, a UBS account. So did Mike Rogers' uh, wife, I believe. But Boehner is up to his gills in this, and no one's reporting it because I think it's so explosive. But Hello, Scott. going on dude you back on you there yeah you there can you hear me can you hear me hey scott can you hear us hello hello Can you hear me, Scott? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me now? He called back, but he can't hear us. 
I cannot hear you. Yeah, you can't hear us. But it seems very funny. <laughs> the audio just went out when I mentioned John Boehner being removed because of his connection to Union Bank of Switzerland and having a bank account there. So I'm happy to continue. If you can hear me. I can hear you. Can you hear us uh, at all? Hear you. I cannot hear you. Uh, my mic and everything is operational. I didn't touch anything. But you can type in any questions, and I will uh, be happy to respond. Here, let's let me uh, start the call over again. Yeah, let's disconnect. Two, one. I would just close saying that we're being hacked. The computer technology system is being attacked by FBI, NSA, CIA, or some sort of hacking division of cyber warfare because they don't want this material to be discussed. It's interesting that this happened the moment I mentioned John Boehner being kicked out of Congress uh, because of his role in the Union Bank of Switzerland terrorist financing uh, connection and accounts. John Boehner goes back to the beginning of this whole saga in 2010. I had sent him a report on the Man Love Thursday, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, homosexual activities in the Middle East. And one month after submitting that report to John Boehner and the Pentagon, uh, I was indicted. So the stories that you see with special forces and uh, soldiers being kicked out of the military because they're standing up to the boy raping pedophilia that's going on that's rampant in the Afghanistan theater. Uh, John Boehner and Jason Chavitz and Saxby Shambliss knew well, uh, well aware about all this stuff. So that's the trigger that seems to have caused this cyber attack. Uh, but I would say it can be rectified by filing uh an official investigation and request for legal action because we can't as a republic long endure when our own government is engaged in stifling free speech. And this is a, per, a perfect example of it. So uh, my experience in the whole Union Bank of Switzerland, meeting Brad Birkenfeld, discovering the Swiss bank accounts, and then filing the book Shell Game, which you can Google, uh, Shell Game by Scott Bennett. You can also go to the webpage, www armysyop.wix.com forward slash Scott Bennett. But if you Google Shell Game by Scott Bennett, you will see all the whistleblowing reports and all the documentation that went up uh, that affirmed Brad Birkenfeld had uh, Swiss banks that were being used to fund the jihadist terrorists in the Middle East that we now see uh, embroiling our operations and uh, the, really the, the destructive force in Libya which is still an open sore given that it's directly connected with the uh, selling of arms to uh, Syria uh, through Turkey. And the Turkish ambassador representative, who is the last person to be with uh, Ambassador Chris Stevens in, in Libya. A lot of this material is just unfolding. Uh, the key parts in my, my own little small part of this puzzle is I was connected to Edward Snowden, Brad Birkenfeld, and uh, it's what causes Union Bank of Switzerland to be connected to Booz Allen Hamilton and Booz Allen Hamilton to be connected with NSA, CIA. So we look forward to continuing to uh, fight this in court, fight this in the political spheres, and we encourage every uh, patriotic citizen to stand up and challenge and fight and hold up really the uh, shell game business card that, that you can get from my website hold it up to their member of Congress and say, I know this military officer submitted this report to you and you did nothing. Men and men and women are dead because of it. I'm holding you to an account. 
this card, this message, this book can serve as the shield for every American to demand accountability because blood has been shed. Men and women are dead and crippled because of uh, these bank accounts that have been funding terrorism. And our own government personnel have known all about it since 2012 and consciously done nothing. That's treason, and that's the next uh, thing that needs to be prosecuted in an international court, if not in a U.S. court. So I'll close it there and say thank you very much, Adam, for having me on your show. Thank you, thank you, Scott. I know you can't hear us, but thank you. Okay, guys, we're back on Conspiracy Normal. Uh, We had to adjourn and go back to the old studio. Yes, we because yes, we, we don't know what happened. Rob's computer took a huge dump. <laughs> just as uh, just as our guest was mentioning John Boehner's retirement and his uh, his involvement with the UBS bank scandal, all of a sudden, just everything just went silent. Everything, so that's everything in my garage stopped working all at the same time. <laughs> so th- so that's why we heard just just nothingness. Uh, and then all of a sudden Scott Bennett came back. We, he, he, we could hear him. He couldn't hear us. So we just went ahead and did, did like a little like conclusion, but, uh, pretty interesting information. Uh, I, I would really love to get him back on, but now I'm kind of worried we're going to get hacked. <laughs> we'll have to fly him in and have him in studio. Yeah, man. Uh, that was just that was just crazy. Yeah, what if there's IEDs <laughs> in the studio? <laughs> <laughs> there might be. Well, what do you think about that, Luke? Because um, you were really getting into it, and yeah, we were all getting into it, and then all of a sudden... It was just like, Some, just that, done, you know? Something really interests me, and I'm sitting here like, oh, what's you going to say next? And then all of a sudden, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, and, and Rob, like, gets him back on, and, like, like his video feed was going insane, was going crazy, and all kinds of stuff, man. So Yeah, multiple issues. Like that's... <laughs> <laughs> we're back in. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, we're about to uh, interview Peter Robbins for another, for, for the next show. But uh, here we are, guys. We don't know. This this show is probably going to be out after that show. So it's going to be a little weird in time. But, you know, whatever. But uh, Since his show was so short, why don't you just make like a double whammy? <laughs> yeah, we could do that. <laughs> it's a possibility. I, I, I'm not sure. I kind of just... Well, actually, we did 30 minutes last week of yeah, reading yeah. an article. So it'll be, it'll be a nice length. Plus, I'm sure everybody's tired of two and a half hour shows. Yeah, so I, I'm sure everyone missed me a lot, man. And oh I, yeah, everybody, everybody misses back. you all the time. But uh, <laughs> guys, we're gonna call it a night for this show. But uh, please listen to us. We're gonna have a special guest on in October. We got plenty more coming up. Hopefully, the NSA doesn't take us out again like they did tonight, or CIA <laughs> or FBI or whatever the hell. They man, were. don't even so, say that. Now, now they're going to get your computer. Too. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and, and we're about to talk soon. about. We, we, you know, chronologically here, we're about to talk about bent waters and and more like uh, more like whistleblowing and stuff. So hopefully, they don't take us out now. So we'll we'll see, you guys. This may be the last you ever hear of us. We might be we might be in in, in Gitmo by the I've, end of the I've night. I've got the SPBC after me. So. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back on Conspiranormal. Hopefully.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.